Welcome to everyone, and especially our distinguished guests and their families who have come from all across the country. It is an honor to have you all here. Justice Kennedy has said, quote, democracy is something that you must learn each generation. It has to be taught. We are ready to learn from you today, Justice Kennedy, as we have in the past, and we are ready through the great and coming work of the Karsh Center for Law and Democracy to continue to teach those values in the years to come. Thank you and welcome. Thank you. Justice Kennedy, uh, you've been in the news a little bit lately. Um, you've retired from the court after 30-some years on the court. Yes. Um, any second thoughts about retiring? <laughs> None at all. Uh, uh, I spent 43 years reading briefs, and I never yet found one I couldn't put down in the middle. Uh, uh, and uh, we're, we're uh, we, uh, uh, it was still my term on the court as an active judge. Uh, by this time, since September, I would have spent probably already 200 hours reading briefs, and uh, Mary and I wanted to uh, in, in, in enjoy life in a different way, so it's important. <laughs> Why do you think they call these, lawyers like to call these things briefs, because they're not that brief, really. Um, why don't they call them something else, or you get great writing in them? In, do you ever see great writing in those briefs? Uh, 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 occasionally, you know, and the, 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 the English um, uh, House of Lords, the briefs are very skimpy, uh, but that's because their hearings go for two or three days, and, and the judges are learning from uh, the lawyers during the argument, and they actually get books off the wall and, 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 and so forth. And, uh, Ours is, uh, with, with the briefs, is, is more efficient. Uh, maybe not as, not as, much, not as much fun. Uh, the, but the English have a great tradition, as you know, of orality. The English language is one of, their, one of the great treasures of the world. And uh, one time I was sitting on the House of Lords, sitting in that I was in a chair <laughs> as a visitor, not there. And, uh, and uh, the... Uh, the, the, one of the barristers was the Queen's counsel in the cases uh, was involved with statute and said, and now, my lords, I wish to turn to the statute. And uh, Lord Diplock said, and then, lawyers know what's coming up, as you know, the maxims of statutory construction, and they, they cancel each other out, stitching time, stays nine, haste makes way, you know, either one. <laughs> and, and, and he said, if counsel begins to quote the maxims of statutory construction, I shall be forced to leave the room. <laughs> And the council said, oh, my lord, I would not wish to precipitate such a calamitous event. Uh, and we don't have time for that stuff. Um, because we read, because that, that's, that's why we have the briefs. So Justice Kennedy, um, Justice Stevens stayed on the court till he was, I think, 90. 
and yes. some other justices have actually stayed a little bit longer than that. Uh, you're obviously in good mental shape. You're obviously in good physical shape. Um, so you could have stayed quite a bit longer. Why did you decide to retire now? Uh, because it's hard to leave something you love, but you can do it if you do it for something you love more. Okay. 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 So um, some justices retire upon the uh, confirmation of their successor. You actually did something different. You retired on the date that you handed in your letter to resignation to, I think, President Trump. Uh, why did you do it that way? It seems to me that uh, the, the way that you described the second way, which was my choice, uh, was the traditional way. I haven't researched it, but uh, to retire contingent on the appointment uh, of your successor, um, it seems to me not a good idea because uh, the uh, confirming authority is uh, no, knows that there's no 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 urgency. Uh, some people might prefer the sitting judge to the judge has been nominated. I, I, I just think that they should be uh, concentrated on the qualifications and, and the temperament of the judge who's been nominated and, and not have this other uh, background consideration. You are very happy with your successor, the person who was selected. You think he'll be a good justice, is that correct? Uh, the, the public will see uh, that the system works, uh, that we're the only branch of the government that gives reasons for what we do. Uh, and, and, and this is to compel allegiance to our decision. We could talk about this a little bit more if you want. Um, but uh, it, it seems to me that the, uh, the public will very soon see uh, that the court is operating in a, in a, in a, in a collegial, uh, deliberative, uh, thoughtful, um, inspiring, inspiring way. Uh, our, 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 our conferences uh, will, will, are being conducted uh, with, with the greatest uh, uh, degree of, of, of collegiality. They'll see that in the opinions that are written uh, over time and over a very short time. Uh, you will see that the system uh, has, has worked and these justices are working very well with their, with their colleagues. Now you must take some pride in the fact that in the long history of the United States Supreme Court, only one justice, you, has two former clerks who have been appointed to the Supreme Court. So All we need is seven more and we can rule the world with it. <laughs> so when they were your clerks, did you ever look at them and say, hey, you know, you could be on the court someday? Uh, well, I, mean, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think so. I was, very, I was always very proud. I have a number of judges who are serving, a number of former clerks who are, are serving on the, uh, on, on, on the federal courts. And it, it's fascinating for me to, to sit here and, and um, take some credit for Bruce's success. I've been trying to figure out how to do that for a long time. Well, uh, well, justice Gorsuch, uh, who was the first one of your former right. clerks to become a justice, you were the only, I believe, the only justice in the Supreme Court's history who was on the court at the same time that one of your former clerks was on the court. Right. Uh, when you're in a meeting and you're talking about a court decision and, uh, and he has a different view than you, do you say, look, I pointed you to my clerkship. <laughs> you know, can't you at least have the courtesy of a... Uh, no, I told, no, I told him the opposite. I said, you didn't do what I told you to do when you were my clerk. Start doing it now. Right, okay. <laughs> so let's go back for a moment. Um, uh, to uh, your earlier days and how you got into the legal world. Uh, you grew up in Sacramento. Yes. 
And your father? As did, as did my beautiful wife, Mary. We know each other from childhood. And you've been married how many years? 50, 55, still trying to get You're it right. You're not sure, 55. <laughs> 55. <laughs> 55. And you have how many children? Three. And mm. how many grandchildren? Nine. Nine, okay. Nine. So uh, obviously a very successful family and a very successful life. Um, it may not have been predictable at the beginning. Your father was a reasonably prominent uh, lawyer uh, in Sacramento. Did he say to you, go to law school, or did he not say that? No, he, he was a, a solo practitioner, and uh, we, were, we were very close. Um, I didn't enjoy school much. I, was, I, I learned to read at a very early age and read a lot of things in his library, so I didn't spend much time in school. But I would go to his office uh, just to keep him company, and I've been pretty soon he had me staple papers, and then I was proofreading things. And, and I probably saw 10 trials before I was out of high school. I'd take him, I'd, I'd go with him. When he, Sacramento uh, was uh, a, a center for people from uh, agricultural, uh, less populated counties nearby to come to, to legal advice. So we would go uh, to the counties uh, around Sacramento or to the, to the courthouses. And uh, so it, law was part of me. I, actually, my, one of my good friends was a, a, his father was a doctor, and uh, Dave was an, an athlete. And so he'd be playing on the football team or the basketball team, and the doctor phoned me and said, we're leaving on the rounds. And I had to drive the doctor on his rounds after dinner. And I was in the, and he was a wonderful, wonderful doctor and, and loved literature, and he and my father used to talk about literature. And I was in, probably in the room of dying people four or five times and uh, saw this doctor. I wanted to be a doctor, but I realized I didn't have the physical skills, the dexterity skills. So. so you must have done reasonably well at Stanford because you got into Harvard Law School. Right. And did you, why did you decide to go east? You had never really lived in the east, had you? Well, I'd been at the London School of Economics uh, uh, after uh, I finished my requirements at Stanford. And uh, again, I, I, I did think I, I wanted to see what the, what the east coast was like uh, because the London, London School was, uh, uh, was, was a very important eye-opener for me. So uh, before, uh, it was pretty clear to me I wanted to go back to Sacramento. My father wasn't well I knew, so I didn't have time to be a clerk. I should probably get back. So you, you, yeah. went, you didn't stay in the East. You went back to pick up your father's practice, or did you kind of take over his practice? Well, uh, it took over me. He, 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 he died, and I, I came up. In, in, in those days, David, um, the, the law profession was an old boy network, literally and figuratively, in a small town. Uh, my father knew every lawyer in town just about, uh, if not by name, certainly by reputation, and the judges knew each other. And uh, when we went back after my father died to see if I could get the practice going, two um, of the more, most senior attorneys in town, each with a major law firm in the town, those days a major law firm, 15 people, uh, <laughs> took, took me to lunch and they said, both of us want uh, you to come with our firm, and if you're interested, we'll each have a separate lunch with you and tell you why, but we've talked and we think you should stay right where you are. Uh, this is best for the legal profession and best for your uh, family that you keep this practice going, and you've got two trials coming up, and each one of them, one of us will send one of our trial attorneys to sit with you at the council table, no charge, just to make sure everything goes right. That was the old boy network, and okay. the old boy network had to change. Uh, we had, uh, uh, in, in my class in, in, in law school, we had close to 500, maybe 450, and I think six women. Uh, and in uh, 
the Sacramento Bar, very few minorities, very few men. That had to change. Uh, and, but the old boy network is where I started. James Google Cousins wrote a book called Justin, you know, one of my favorite American authors. Love Possessed is his most famous work. But he wrote about uh, the, the practice of law in the 30s in a mythical New England small town. And uh, it, it is the way the practice of law was, even in Sacramento up till about the 1960s, 1960s, when everything changed. What type of area did you practice in? Whatever your problem was, I was an expert. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> well, and I, I, uh, uh, I taught constitutional law by, by some strange accident. And, uh, and, and there's a Knight Law School in Sacramento, McGeorge Law School, and you were yeah. teaching constitutional law there for many years. Is that right? It's a, it's a, McGeorge began as a Knight Law School in the 1920s, uh, and then it, it's the University of Pacific, and it added a day program in the late 60s. Uh, but when I uh, started, to, Mary and I moved back to Sacramento. I was trying to see if I could keep this practice going, earn enough money to buy the refrigerator and so forth. And um, my secretary said, uh, Judge Shaver, uh, Judge Halbert, and Judge Cole are in the waiting room to see you. And th these three had come uh, to my office unannounced, the United States District Judge, the presiding judge of the criminal court, the later presiding judge of the civil court. Um, and they said, we want you to teach. I said, well, you teach? I said, I can you know, barely keep this practice going. They said, no, no, it's very important for you to teach. So finally, I said, well, in a couple of years, I might teach corporations or contracts. They said, no, constitutional law. I said, constitutional law. <laughs> um, and it turned out that I had graded constitutional law on the bar uh, the year before. Uh, after I passed the bar, uh, the bar examiners asked if I'd grade a paper. And in those days, you got, a, I think, a dollar a book. Was it, Mary, a dollar a book for 1,500 books? That was a lot of money in the 60s. And, uh, so I graded constitutional law. They said, oh, you're a constitutional law expert. And so, I, I said, I said, so anyway, it turned out. But, but, but what happened is the Warren Court then began coming out with its decisions in what we now call the criminal procedure area, but in those days it was part of the regular con law course, uh, Mapp and Escobedo and, 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 and Gideon. Um, and uh, I had a, a, somewhat of a criminal practice of my own, but then other lawyers retained me in criminal cases, and it became uh, somewhat relevant, what I was teaching to what I was practicing. So you're practicing law, you're teaching constitutional law at right. night, um, and then eventually somebody named Ronald, named Ronald Reagan gets elected governor, Right. and how did you get to meet Ronald Reagan? Oh, it's, it's not clear. He, he uh, came to Sacramento, and uh, he and some of his uh, advisors uh, asked us about places to live and, and rent, and, I, and, and, and uh, I did some legal work uh, for them on small little matters, and uh, got to know him, and, uh, and Mar Nancy always liked Mary very much. Um, and I, 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 I said to the governor, I said, you know, there's two things you, you can't ask me about. He said, oh, what's that? And, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, I said, one thing, I, you can't ask me whoever should be appointed a judge, because I practice uh, in the, the state courts. I didn't go to federal court very much. And if you get the reputation of the jud judge maker or a judge breaker, it's not good for the relation you have with the bench, David. The, you don't know if they're bending over if, 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 against you to show how strong they are or for you. 
So I said, don't ask me to be a judge. He said, what else? I said, don't ask me about politics. I don't know anything about it. So he and Nancy knew I never had anything uh, you know, to sell them. If I saw something wrong, I, I went in. And uh, was in the office one time. Uh, I, I think I might have told you this story. Um, and to see him about something. And uh, Deaver came running in. He said, Governor, your friends from Hollywood are here today. We thought they were coming tomorrow. We haven't had a chance to preach you. He said, oh, what do they want? And uh, he said, oh, they'll, they'll tell you it's, it's nothing. And, and so in walks John Wayne, Henry Fonda, and uh, Char Charlton Heston. And, and they do this thing about how good everybody looks and so forth. And I, and I, I told the governor, I said, I'd leave. He said, no, no, you stay. I, I have to see you in Deaver. So Ray said, oh, what brings you to Sacramento? And uh, they said, we're here about the Arts Commission. He'd just been elected. He said, what's the Arts Commission? I said, he said, well, that's a commission, state commission, that gives grants to poets and playwrights and, and sculptors and, 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 and painters. And uh, the legislature has cut the budget. Uh, I forget the numbers, but it's from 18 million to 14 million. Uh, and Ray said, oh, I'm glad you told me about that. I'm against that. <laughs> and, and they said, they said, good. He said, no, I'll, I'll veto the 14. They said, no, 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 we, no. We, we have the 14. We want the 18. He said, no, no. He said, I'm going to veto the 14. The government shouldn't get involved in saying what's good art and what's bad art. Uh, there's not much money. You can get it. And the world's most unsuccessful lobbying commission. <laughs> Be, begin to un, un, unfold before my eyes, oh. and 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 he vetoed the whole thing. And but he, uh, uh, oh. but he knew what he believed and believed what. He, and then I later wrote his tax reduction. So who was more impressive, for, Henry Fonda, uh, Charlton Heston, or John Wayne? I think they were all equally dismayed. Right. <laughs> so uh, you must have gotten to know. Um, President Ford at some point, because he appointed you to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Did Ronald Reagan help you a bit? How did you get to be known to President Ford? Uh, it, it wasn't clear to me that uh, I really wanted to be a judge, although my practice was taking me not only around the country, but around the world, and I just didn't have a chance to be with the family. And I really want to be a district judge. That, that's the, the greatest job in the world, the United States district judge. There's nothing you can do with a district judge. It's their own empire. I love it. Uh, but, and I like the trials, but uh, Watergate came along and they weren't making any uh, positions for f federal district judges. And then the circuit vacancy came along and uh, President, uh, pardon me, then Governor Reagan uh, told me that he really wanted me to take that and he called President, President Ford. And, uh, so I went on the Ninth Circuit in 1975. So you, well, now you went on the Ninth Circuit, it's 1975. I right. think you were the, I guess, the youngest federal court of appeals judge in the United States at the time. Right. Um, but you had to give up some income because you're practicing law. Presumably you're making more than a federal judge, Meg. So did you say to your family, we're gonna have to shrink our living style, or what did you do? Uh, well, we managed, Mary was a teacher, teaching at the time. And, and, and we made it through Sacramento, not uh, as expensive to live in as maybe Los Angeles or San Francisco. Uh, so, so, so we scraped through, and the kids have been very good. They've never complained about the fact that well, there's 
not, 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 a, lot, not a lot there. Uh, but we, we thought that the service to the government uh, had its own intrinsic value, and, and they recognized that. Okay. So what happened is you go in the court in 1975, you're confirmed, I guess, unanimously then for the Court of Appeals position as well. Right. And uh, you're there from late 1970s through the 1980s. And in 1987, I believe it was, uh, President Reagan nominated Robert Bork to the court. Correct. Uh, that didn't get con he didn't get confirmed by the United States Supreme and, and Court. And what it was about a three month. Uh, there were long hearings, long but it hearings was a, a, a very uh, acrimonious. He was not confirmed. Uh, President uh, Reagan then appointed uh, Harvard Law Professor Doug Ginsburg. He did not appoint him. Well, he, he didn't appoint. He thought about appointing him, right. but he didn't actually appoint him. And so then, um, when uh, Justice Judge or Professor Ginsburg didn't get uh, the appointment, um, you get a call from the White House. Did you say, how come you didn't call me earlier? Or, <laughs> and what did they say when they well, called you? I was, somebody, well, they asked me to, to, to come back uh, to Washington, which I did. And uh, I, I told the president that Mary and I talked about this, and we really uh, did not want to come to Washington. Uh, Mary had some, a couple years left for her teaching retirement, and this was our hometown. And we thought, sure, the kids would be Californians. And the youngest, Kristen, was, I think, a sophomore at Stanford. We knew they wouldn't come back to, Cali to uh, Washington. And uh, I told him I, I, I'd just rather look for somebody else. And uh, I said, I don't know anybody in Washington. He said, oh, you know me. <laughs> I, I, I said, what am I supposed to do, come for lunch every day? <laughs> um, but uh, but and again, and he, he liked Mary. He said, oh, Mary will like Washington. So, I, I guess you can't turn the president out. But as it turned out, all the children moved, not because of us, because of jobs and marriages to the East Coast, so it worked out. Okay, so you get on the Supreme Court, again, uh, confirmed unanimously. So what's it like when you're the most junior member of the court? I understand that you, are the, you have two responsibilities as the junior member. One is you have to sit in the, in the uh, sessions where you're dis discussing cases, and if anybody knocks the door, you have to go answer the door. Right. And secondly, you're in charge of food, the cafeteria committee. The, the cafeteria committee. Is that committee. a big responsibility? Uh, I, I was able to handle it. Okay. Uh, uh, so. uh, but, but the answering the door, uh, it doesn't happen very often. And when it does, you're glad to, to stretch and not have to listen to your colleagues. But. So let's talk about most Americans probably do not understand how the court really works. And so in the, some of the time we have now, let's talk about it. So uh, when people have uh, disputes, they try to appeal to the Supreme Court. How many uh, people try to apply to the Supreme Court for a, for a, a resolution? How many, let's say, opinions, or not opinions, but how many applications for cases to be held are, come every year? And how many do you actually grant, or does the court the, actually the, grant? The applications are called petitions. You're asking the court for a writ of certiorari. And we have um, probably close to 9,000, I think maybe recently about uh, 80, 80, 8,200 petitions a year. And uh, they come in all year long, and the, the, the clerks uh, are in charge of organizing them and, uh, and, and doing, doing memos on them so we can review them very quickly. And it's you know, like doing push-ups. You do so many every morning. They come in all year long. And um, any one of us can make a little check mark uh, on the petition for certiorari. And if any one of us does that, that means all nine of us must discuss it. So out of the 8,000 plus petitions we get, we discuss about 500 a year. Uh, and we do this uh, September through June. And 
uh, it takes four votes to grant the case. Sometimes there are three votes, but one of the justices who wants to hear the case thinks it's very important and um, asks it to be put over so that uh, he can or she can write a memo to us. And from those 8,000, we discuss 500, and we take optimally, uh, I think, around 100. Lately, we've been taking less. And so that's the petition has been granted. You're a lawyer, and you hear that your case has been granted by the Supreme Court, which you're very excited about if you won. You're very disappointed about I mean, very excited about if you lost, very disappointed if you won. And so then uh, the, the next um, uh, aspect of it is the written, written briefs are filed. And um, I've, I've told you already about that, that we have to read the briefs. Uh, we were, uh, each of us has a, a, a district of the country, a circuit, where we're the circuit justice. And when I was first on the court, my position, my uh, appointment was to be the circuit justice for the 11th circuit, um, which Florida, Georgia, Alabama. And we try to meet with our lawyers and our judges once a year. And we were in uh, Alabama. And it was a Saturday, and the judges uh, were dressed, they were very polite to come in and hear me for an hour, and the attorneys. But they were dressed, you know, to play golf or tennis and to hear me at 9 o'clock in the morning, something like that. And so one of the lawyers said, how do you read all of those briefs? And I said, well, I assigned them to my clerk. They, they each of them read a fourth of them. I have to read them all. And uh, if they're very difficult, I read them again over the weekend. I play opera in the background. I have what I call one opera and two opera briefs. Uh, well, and the minute I said that, uh, they were too polite to roll their eyes, but I thought I lost the audience. Here's this guy from the East talking about the opera. And it's Saturday morning. And so I thought, well, I've lost the audience. Uh, but the attorney raised his hand and said, I have a rule like that when I write those briefs. I said, oh, he said, I have a one six-pack brief and a two-six-pack brief. <laughs> <laughs> So, I said, I remember your last one, I think it's a three-six back for you. So, back on the writs of certiorari, um, if three justices say, I'd like to hear this case, but not four, right. uh, it isn't held, but do any of the justices say to their colleagues, well, you know, I really would like to hear this one, can I get you to go on this, or you don't lobby each other on No, we're, on very, we're, we're very careful, uh, both at the cert petition stage, and later we'll get into the decision stage. Uh, we do, not, we do not talk with each other one-on-one -on -one, uh, because we don't want what a cabal or a, 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 a particular group of people. Uh, it may be that uh, in the petition thing, uh, uh, I, I, I would, would see something and I, I just go next door to Stephen and Stephen I, I, so I think there's a technical thing in here that we've missed. Uh, and he said, that's right. And then we'll immediately write a memo to the conference, I've just talked with Stephen, and we think that just so that there's no okay. uh, b b back background conversations okay. going so on. So, in every case, let's suppose uh, you're hearing 90 to 100 cases a year. Right. In every case, you obviously have uh, a you know plaintiff and a defendant. Right. In fact, um, and so each one files a brief. Right. Which are limited in size by no 50 pages. 50 pages, roughly. So. Yeah. But now we have a gigantic amicus curiae brief, uh, kind of. Uh, a bar where lots of briefs are filed as friends of the court. Do each of the justices read the plaintiff and the defendant brief as well as the amicus briefs or just the plaintiff and defendant brief before you hear the oral argument? 
Oh, we try to read most of the appellate. I can't read all of the amicus. But, um, but in, in a way, it's for us to see the systemic consequences of what we're doing. And, it, and particularly in patent cases and scientific cases, we learn a tremendous amount from the amicus, from the amicus briefs. So the briefs uh, are filed, you read the briefs, and then do the justices ever talk about the cases before you hear the oral argument? No, we have a rule, we do not talk okay. uh, before oral argument. And in the first time I get an inkling, if you're my colleague, as to what you're thinking, might be from your questions. I'm, one of my questions might be, isn't it true, counsel, this is a Clean Water Act case and the Congress says you can sue? And I'm saying, cool it, Justice Alito, there's no problem of jurisdiction here. <laughs> uh, but then he might say, but isn't it true, counsel, that? And, he, and he's saying, not so fast, Kennedy. And, and, and a good oral, if we behave properly, which sometimes we don't, uh, and, if, and if the attorney knows the dynamic, the attorney can enter into a conversation the justices are having with each other through the question. And that's the oral argument dynamic. And it's just a half hour. We've gone Each on side here. gets 30 minutes typically. Yeah, and what have we gone on here for maybe 20 minutes or something? And, and you get a half hour per se on a case which is, you've, you've spent months and months on one of the important cases. Uh, it, it, it's hard, but it's a very fast moving Chief, Chief Justice Rehnquist was famous for interrupting people in the middle of a sentence if they're 30 minutes in, in the middle of a sentence, in the middle of the word if, you know. Right. <laughs> so, okay, each gets 30 minutes. And then uh, would you say that uh, there is now a Supreme Court bar, as there was many, many years ago as well, at the beginning of the court, where people who are specialized in the Supreme Court and they make arguments, they presumably understand the court and so forth. Are you better off if you're in front of the Supreme Court as a, a litigant to have a member of the Supreme Court bar or should you get your local lawyer who might have helped you get the case uh, all the way to the court to argue the case? Do you think there's a real difference between having a great experienced advocate or, or not? We, we like to think that the uh, attorneys from all over the country can and should come to us. Uh, I have to say, David, um, that uh, our, 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 our dynamic, uh, our, our, our customs are such that uh, you, should, you should know them. And so the Supreme Court advocates, I, I think, uh, maybe uh, sometimes do a better job. Okay. But when I was... Uh, arguing cases, uh, or trying cases. I would never, I, I tried some cases in Nevada, and uh, I would never go to a court uh, without watching them for a few days before, reading the papers, seeing what the locals seen. So uh, when justices ask questions, uh, are they trying to get information or are they trying to persuade the other justices? Both, uh, and, and, and one of the things is sometimes uh, it will occur to one of us uh, that maybe there's a reason to decide this case that hasn't been discussed much. And I always bring that up to counsel. I say, isn't it true that we could hold, so that they're not surprised. I, the counsel shouldn't be surprised by having something that they didn't argue. So I, I'm very careful right. if I think there's uh, some third way to go that hasn't been mentioned that I, that I, I mention it. Now, after the oral argument is completed, uh, when do the justices get together? It's called a conference. You get together in your conference room, and then how do, who talks, who decides who writes the opinions? How does that work? Well, within 48, 72 hours of, of hearing the cases, uh, and this is basically, as we say, the first time we've gotten an inkling of our colleagues' views, we meet in the conference rooms, and there's uh, a, uh, an, an, an atrium, a double door, uh, 
between the hallway and the conference room just to remind us that it's private. It's a double door. It's just the nine of us. Uh, it's absolutely confidential. And the uh, uh, Chief Justice uh, begins by summarizing the case and giving his views. And then you go to the next most senior justice, down to the junior justice who speaks last. And I actually liked that. When you're last, if it was four to four, you could kind of drag it out, and it'd be very exciting. Um, so, if uh, you are so, then when uh, everybody kind of knows their views, does, does the chief justice, if he is in the majority, will he assign the opinion to, to himself yes, or somebody yes. else in the majority? What, what, what we do is we can sometimes be tentative on the case and say, subject to the views of my colleagues, it seems to me that, uh, and, and these cases are close, and and sometimes um, since it's private. Uh, we can maybe suggest a, a wacky theory that we think might work, and maybe it does, maybe it, maybe it does. So sometimes people ask me, do I get nervous when I go on the bench? The answer is no, I don't get nervous on that. But I get nervous when I go into the conference. Uh, because suppose they say, well, Kennedy, haven't you thought of this case, or didn't you see this point? So you, you, you're basically arguing four to six cases that day, and you want to be, uh, be on your toes. Uh, you, you know, when you're, you're, an, you're an attorney and you go into a courtroom, uh, uh, you're, you're nervous. Okay, so uh, after one conference, will it generally be decided who's going to vote how and who's going to write what opinions? Usually, and sometimes it's tentative. The, the Chief Justice, uh, if he's in the majority, assigns the majority. If he's in the dissent, assigns the dissent. Uh, the senior justice uh, on the other side assigns the majority or the dissent. Okay. And we try to keep the workload even, uh, and we try not to uh, give the junior justices all the really difficult railroad reorganization cases and the research cases. So, so when uh, um, the opinions are assigned, then the justices go back and they, they either, do they write the opinions themselves or the clerks write the first drafts, or it depends it, on the justice? It's different. Uh, my my uh, practice was I, I talked to the clerks, I'd assign one clerk to write the opinion, tell them what I thought should be there, or her, tell her what I thought should be there. But then I would write my own thing, because I, I can't, the, I, I, the clerk would write something to be very good, but I, I don't, you know, they're at level 10 and I'm at level two. You know, you have to go, when you're right, you have to go down, and when you're in business, you have to go down the blind alleys or the false starts uh, before you get up to the level where you want to be. So um, I have to do that myself. I don't have a lot of time for all the citations and, and stuff. I let the clerk. So when you do write that. them, did you write? Did you write your opinions in longhand or use a computer? Or uh, I, the, the the technology when I was practicing law was to to dictate, and the clerks are still amazed that I can dictate. But that's what lawyers did. Uh, but now I use the. the okay. So but, but it's just like if you're, write, you're writing a letter or. or uh, uh, you write, and, and you, you think, you say, well, this, this can't be right, and it goes in the wastebasket or it goes off the computer screen. So you, know, you, go, you have to have do, do the false starts. So you have the opinions, and then the draft opinions, are they circulated to all the justices? They see the, them, the justices say, you know what, your draft opinion is so influential and persuasive that I'm going to change my vote. Does that happen very much? I wish it did. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. It, it, uh, 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 sometimes you'll have a five to four opinion, and you'll circulate it, you'll say you're the majority. And the, one of your colleagues who was with you at conference says, 
you know, I'm not so sure about this. I'm waiting for the dissent. And then the dissent comes around and they can be convinced, or it can be the other way. If you're writing the dissent, then you can get the fifth vote. So it, it's, uh, it's, very, it's very exciting to see what the judges will so do. But we give reasons for what we do. And we give reasons, David, as you know, in order to command allegiance to what we do, to persuade. Uh, the, sometimes people say the court is anti-majoritarian. Uh, and that may be true in the short term. We make decisions that are surprising uh, to people and, un, and, un, and unpopular. But we think that over time, uh, I'm jumping ahead a little bit to where the decision comes out. We think, David, that over time we're majoritarian. Over time, I think most of the decisions of the Supreme Court have been acknowledged to be uh, correct, or if, if not the result you would like it, at least they understand that the Constitution requires the result. Do the justices um, sort of lobby each other in this sense? They'll go down to one of your colleagues' uh, office and say, I read your opinion, it's pretty good, but uh, why don't you think about this or that, and maybe you could change your vote here or there. Does that ever happen? Or well, uh, we, we, we never talk about, I'll, I'll vote for you if, on this case if you vote for me in that case. That's the felony. You can't do that. <laughs> no, 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 this is very serious, very serious stuff. Uh, each case is on its own merit. But on its merits, uh, would, but, you, would you but, go but, and try but, to? But on, 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 on the merits. Often, um, we, uh, and this was one of the things I did quite often, was to suggest changes in wording uh, to make the opinion, uh, I, I, I thought, more powerful and more persuasive. But again, this is done in writing. Or I might see Justice Breyer was right next to me. I said, Stephen, I'm going to make a suggestion about part three of the opinion. It seems to me you could uh, not emphasize this part so much. But then I'd write a memo to him so that all the colleagues could see it. Now, do the justices um, socialize with each other or not so much? Not so much just because of, 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 of workload, but we're, and we're careful. If we see each other at a social event, at dinner, it's not really polite to the other people for us to go off in a corner and talk about collateral estoppel or something. <laughs> okay. uh, and so, so if we see each other, we, we, we try to. But we have dinners together and lunches together. And we have lunch together all during the time we're sitting. So when you actually final, finalize your opinions, and they're printed, I guess they're printed in the court's basement, or where you have a printing press, or somewhere like that, I guess. Yes. Um, why is it that you've been so good at keeping uh, leaks from occurring? Because everybody else in Washington loves to leak what's going to happen. How come the no court opinion really has leaked out in advance? Well, we've been very fortunate so far, but in, this is important because for every case we take, many other cases are being held uh, depending on the result. And if the, and if the word leaked out, then an attorney who heard about it could settle one of these other cases with this advance knowledge. Excuse me, with this advanced right. knowledge. So that's why it must be very, and we, and we tell the clerks, Bruce would remember, uh, we, we keep talking about confidentiality, confidentiality. And uh, we, we, on the Ninth Circuit one time, um, there was a party with clerks and some other people were there. And uh, the, the wife of a clerk was there, and somebody said, Where, I'll make up the name, where's Steve? And he said, Oh, well, he's reading about salmon again. A newspaper reporter was there and figured out that the clerk that this judge was working for was writing the Salmon case, which was one of the most controversial cases in the Ninth Circuit. So you have to be very, very careful. And we tell our clerks about this. 
So um, most cases are actually not that controversial, and you'll probably decide them either unanimously or close to it, but right. there are a lot of five to four decisions. Right. Uh, in your term on the court, you wrote over 300 majority opinions, but you wrote 92 majority opinions that were five to four. Really? That's right. <laughs> 92. So uh, let's talk about some of the opinions that you're very well known for. Uh, some were five to four, some were not. Um, but let me talk about, uh, for example, um, on uh, gay, lesbian rights. Um, you have been a strong advocate that everybody should be treated equally and that there should be no discrimination. And in fact, you authored the opinion that allowed gay marriage to occur. Is that something that surprised your conservative, uh, let's say, supporters? And is it something you're very proud of having uh, written that opinion? In a sense, it surprised me. Um, what surprised uh, you? The the, the outcome, the, the reaction, um, or uh, but not your decision. Uh, well, you know, because my religious beliefs. Uh, these, these are that's one of the reasons I, I wrote it. it. It seemed to me that I couldn't hide, and the nature of injustice is you can't see it in your own time. And uh, as we thought about this, and I thought about it more and more, it seemed to me that just uh, wrong uh, under the Constitution to say that over 100,000 uh, adopted children of, of gay parents uh, could not have their parents married. I, I, I just thought that this was, this was wrong, but it took, and I struggled with it and wrote the case over a weekend, and that's the way I came out. But as I say, you, 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 as you write, the, the reasons uh, either compel themselves or, or not. Okay. And uh, judges, I tell judges, I tell young judges, old judges, your duty in every case is to ask, why are you doing what you're about to do? What are the reasons? And even if you've done it 100 times, you have to ask what those reasons are again and see if they are still valid. That's what you must do. It's introspective. And you owe that. You take an oath that you're going to listen to each side. And if you make up your mind in advance, you're not following that oath. So, um in abortion rights, uh, many people who uh, were your supporters generally of your judicial philosophy were disappointed, I think it's fair to say, that you were not in favor of overturning Roe v. Wade. In fact, while you may have narrowed it to some extent, you never uh, voted to overturn it. Um, what was your thinking on that particular area? Well, our thinking is the, set forth in the opinions. We, we give reasons for what we do. We don't go around later explaining it. It's, it's, it's in the opinion, and we hope we hope that the opinion is convincing. I, I tell some people sometimes, but there's one of the first cases uh, on the court uh, that was very controversial when I was first on the court was the flag burning case, uh, uh, a Texas versus Johnson. Uh, some young man is mad and he burns an American flag and Texas has a statute that you can't uh, burn an American flag. And so he's prosecuted for a criminal offense and it comes to us and it was five to four. And it was, uh, David, it was, it was generational, Rehnquist, White, uh, Stevens, who'd been in World War I, or pardon me, World War II, uh, um, uh, just couldn't understand this flag burning thing. And uh, it was five to four, and I wrote a very small, short opinion. And I said, it is poignant but fundamental that the flag protects those who hold it in contempt. And the flag is very beautiful. It's our symbol of national unity. Um, but that uh, this is paradigm, paradigmatic speech. 
and it came out, 80 senators got to the floor of the Senate and denounced the court. And then later, I, we were in California, or, and there's, there's a scene, some of the uh, children for breakfast uh, and the pancake house or something. Somebody comes along and says, are you Justice Kennedy on the court? And I said, it's some C-SPAN junkie. I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, um, he said, I want to tell you about your case, the flag burning case. And he said, I practice law in Ukiah. Ukiah is a small city in Northern California. And I do thought I lost my mom years ago, but my dad lives there. That's my hometown. And like you, I'm a solo, like you were, I'm a solo practitioner. And he, he said, my father never comes to the office, but I had a lot of people in my office. And, uh, and he came in very angry. And he threw down the San Francisco Chronicle, which had the flag burning headline. And he said, you should be ashamed to be an attorney. And he said, the reason is, is he was a prisoner of war in Japan, I strike that in Germany, and um, they would take little pieces of red, white, and blue cloth and make flags, and they, the guards would find him, take him away. And he said, I didn't know what to do, said, but I gave him your case to read, because uh, it's short. And uh, he came back uh, two or three days later and said, you can be proud to be an attorney. He, he read the reasons, he thought about it, and that's what we try to do with the opinions. Now, one of your famous five to four decisions is Citizens United, yes. uh, in which you upheld the right of corporations to basically uh, make uh, political contributions. Right. Any second thoughts about that decision ever? I, I, uh, again, the decision stands, stands for itself. Of course, all of us are concerned with money in politics. The government of the United States, in that case, argued before the Supreme Court, we're in the court and the podium is down there, the attorney for the government of the United States argued that uh, in, if there was an upcoming political campaign, I forget the, uh, maybe six weeks, uh, and a book was being published or a movie uh, being uh, produced and it was critical of a candidate that you could stop publication, I thought it was unbelievable. Uh, this is a First Amendment right. Now, it's true that uh, there's the problem of money in politics, but I think we just have to address it some other way. And notice uh, that the press was exempt, so the major newspapers could print what they want, uh, but you couldn't have a book or a movie the other way. I, I, was a, so now, the, the result was, as, as you know, uh, that money flows into these campaigns, and it, and it seems to me we have to think about it, and, but that the voters are the ones that, if they see money coming in from the campaign for wrong source, there should be disclosure, and uh, they can vote against the candidate if they don't like it. So um, when you were uh, in the court in the last number of years, after Justice O'Connor retired, you were basically seen, rightly or wrongly, as the swing vote. What, did that put undue pressure on you in making decisions because you were principally the person who could make the court go one way or the other? Did you feel pressure or not because of that? Well, I, I think every one of the justices uh, feels pressure in, 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 every, in every case. Uh, yes, it was, it was a, a little bit, little bit hard. A swing vote, I said, uh, the swing vote has this um, uh, symbolism uh, uh, of, of this swinging back and forth in space. I say the cases swing, I don't, I, I'm consistent. Yeah. Now, you um, kind of made fun of your constitutional law expertise, but in fact, you know the Constitution quite well, and you carry it with you everywhere you go. Is yeah. that right? Yep, yeah, I have it. You have your Constitution right there? Are you ready for an answer? Yes. So, um, 
So in your view, um, when you carry the Constitution, you obviously know it very well. What do you think about the theory that you should look at the intent of the uh, drafters of the Constitution about what you should decide in a case? This, this is one of the hardest questions in constitutional law and, and, and that we have to, to wrestle with. Look at this. This is a written document that the framers wanted handed down. Uh, you can't just ignore what the words are. On the other hand, I don't think uh, Jefferson, uh, and you're a great Jeffersonian scholar, uh, and, 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 and Madison spent a lot of time reading dictionaries, and they use spacious language, life, liberty, property. If they had known all the specifics of a just society, they would have written down. They didn't do that. And, it, and uh, these words uh, have to have meaning over, over time. Um, and uh, 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 Jefferson, uh, pe people sometimes get me, Declaration of Independence is life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. That's Declaration of Independence. Life, liberty, property is what Madison put in the Fifth Amendment. Uh, and it's also in the 14th. Um, and happiness was, was interesting. Uh, happiness, uh, the Greek word is uh, eudaimonia. And the, even in the Greek times, uh, there, they had two meanings. Uh, and one was happiness that you uh, have material possessions. The other is you're happy because um, you have contributed to civic life, and this enhances your own dignity. And Jefferson used it in this second sense. The happiness uh, was to give to your community, and the result was enriching to you. So uh, today, as a retired justice, you have the right to sit on uh, circuit court decisions. And yes. um, are you thinking of doing that? And what are you thinking of doing now? Writing memoirs, teaching more? You, you still teach in, uh, in Austria every year yes. on summer. And are you thinking of doing more teaching, writing your memoirs, sitting on court uh, decisions? What do you uh, think you're doing? It's un unclear to me that I'll sit on other courts yet, uh, because I do have writing I want to do and, and teaching, plus the chief justice. Uh, has a, some uh, important administrative projects for me. I'm very interested in criminal justice reform. Uh, I, th I think our prison sentences are far too long. Uh, I think there's a, a, a lot we can do. So I have things like that I'm and, interested uh, in. Law schools, you've taught at law schools for quite some years. Uh, how has law school education, legal education changed, or how should it change? You still think the case method is the best way to teach lawyers? It, it seems to me, so I, I, I think we were asking the dean about this. Uh, today, there's more emphasis on what we call clinical studies. The, the classes are a little bit smaller. Um, and the law students are taught uh, uh, or asked to discuss what they would do in, in, in real life situations. I, I think, I think that's, that's very important. But over the years, uh, you you uh, had the same cases as my 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 father did, uh, and this over time this gives us the language of the law. There's a language of the law that unites our profession and unites this country. I can pick up a telephone and talk to someone who's a continent away and a couple generations removed, uh, but he's a lawyer or she's a lawyer, and we have this common language. And this is the envy of the rest of the world. You know, most um, countries, very few countries, have graduate law schools. Uh, law is an undergraduate 
uh, degree all over Europe, in England, uh, in, in, in China. Um, graduate law schools on the American model exist in South Africa, US, Canada, Japan. That's about it. Uh, and it's very expensive. Um, but it gives us this language of the law, this, this profession. And it means that uh, lawyers can talk together and do leases and contracts and, 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 and corporate mergers, all without uh, the intervention of the government. And this is the language of the law that we use, and it's one of our great national resources. And, and the, law schools, the law schools preserve it for us. Justice Kennedy, we're almost out of time. I have two final questions for you. First, uh, what would you like your legacy to be? Uh, you've served in the court for 30 years. You've written enormous number of opinions. You're quite respected throughout the legal community. But what would you like your legacy to be? My, I hope that people would look at the court and realize that uh, not only is it possible but necessary for a democracy uh, to have a civil, rational, thoughtful, decent discussion so that we can plan our own destiny. Um, we are, are in a time with an uncivil discourse. Aristotle um, and Plato both gave a low grade to democracy. Um, and I went back to two summers ago and read, um, uh, the, the, we read Plato and Aristotle. Uh, Is that a common thing that justices do, going back and reading Plato and well, Aristotle? Well, I, 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 I wanted to do it because I was concerned. And my interpretation was that Aristotle thought democracy should be given a low grade because it did not have the capacity to mature. And our duty, our destiny is to prove him wrong. Look at the rest of the world is looking at us to see what democracy means, what freedom means. And uh, they see this hostile, fractious discourse, and we're not making the case for democracy. At the end, David, of the last century, the last quarter, last 25 years of the last century, was the birth of democracy. Democracy's coming all over the world. Um, the first part of this century, we're seeing the death of democracies. And in part, it's because of the example uh, that we're not setting. And uh, I, I want, and that's why the, uh, the Karsh Center here, it seemed to me, is on uh, such an important mission. And that is to restore uh, civility and decency in our civic dialogue. That's the way democracy, democracy has to work. Uh, Aristotle um, said that in a civil discussion, uh, there has to be uh, re re respect, uh, mo moderation, thought. And he said the participants in uh, a discussion in a democratic society um, must have eunoia, which means kindness and respect. I disagree with you on Proposition X, but I respect you immensely. And we must restore that to our public discourse. Final question uh, I'd like to ask you is this. What would you like the American people to most know about the Supreme Court? If you could summarize for them in 30 seconds or 60 seconds, what would you like them to know about the United States Supreme Court? That it is dedicated uh, to finding what the law is. And the law has a moral foundation. The law is interested in truth. Truth is often the facts. Was the light red? Was the light green? And you begin there. And this isn't a partisan exercise. 
You're, you're not a Democrat uh, who thinks the gun was smoking and a Republican who thinks it wasn't, or a Democrat who thought the lights was green and the Republican thought the light was red. That's crazy. Uh, we want to show that facts count and that facts are found in a thoughtful, rational, uh, respectful way. And after that, uh, we know what principles have to come from the facts, and those principles are, are the principles of the Constitution, and the principles of freedom are heritage. The work of freedom is never done. Justice Kennedy, thank you for your great service to the American people and to our country for more than 30 years. Thank you very well, much. And thank you for your service and for your commitment. Thank you, David. Thank you.